welcome to Australian Women Preach, a podcast that aims to raise women's voices in preaching the gospel. Our intention is to model the church we want to be, inclusive, diverse and welcoming. Brought to you by WATAC, Women and the Australian Church and The Grail in Australia. Sally Longley is a spiritual director, supervisor and retreat leader based in Sydney. She studied at the Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary in the USA and has a D-Min. Sally is a giver of the Ignatian Exercises, a pastor of the Avalon Peace Church and a team member on Listen Into Life, which is a formation program for spiritual directors. Sally has authored three books, the latest being Conversations with Silence, Rosetta Stone of the Soul. Some refer to Matthew chapter 5 with the Beatitudes and the eye for an eye, love your enemy passages as the great reversal, the upside down ways of Jesus. All through this chapter, we have Jesus saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And these are perhaps some of the most well-known passages in Scripture, and yet they may well be the least followed. And there's good reason for that, because to do so would be to live profoundly counter-culturally to the world around us. So how can we be faithful to such a calling? How can we embody these passages? Jesus says in verse 38, You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. Do not resist an evildoer. Interesting. But since we know Jesus never taught passivity in the face of evil and never taught that violence is the appropriate response to evil, perhaps we need to dig a little deeper to fully understand this passage. The word often translated here, but not always, is resist. In the Greek is antistemi, which is a technical term used in the Greek Old Testament, meaning to stand, stemi, against, anti, and it's in the context of war, where the warring parties stand up to each other, facing each other in war. So it's a warring term. It's a fighting term. So then the word we read as resist is perhaps better translated as do not retaliate against violence with violence or offer no violent resistance to the one who is evil. So we're being encouraged to resist non-violently. In other words, don't let the evildoer make you into an evildoer. Don't let the murderer set the agenda so you also, in responding like with like, also become a murderer. Then Jesus goes on to say, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn and offer them the other also. Theologian Walter Wink asks, why the specificity about the right cheek? Why not simply say when someone strikes you on your cheek, turn the other one? Well, in Jesus' time, the left hand was only used for unclean tasks. So to be hit on the right cheek means you have to have been backhanded by someone's right hand, which is not only violent, but also in that culture, extremely demeaning and insulting, saying, well, you're less than human. And it is intended to insult and was the normal way to lord it over others. And one would not do this to your social equal in that culture. So if I turn the other, i.e. my left cheek, far from being passive and becoming a doormat, I'm actually showing a fearlessness 
and making a statement, if you want to hit me, then do so as an equal. I am an equal. I'm standing in my full dignity, knowing that all are equal in God's sight. I have no need to cower or slink away, which would be the expected response. I may well get flogged for my insolence, but my point has been made and no one is taking away my dignity. I'm asserting my equal humanity. This is a creative, non-violent response that stands up to the striker. In a similar way, Walter Wink examines the cultural background regarding giving our last coat and going the extra mile, showing that he's giving very creative suggestions as to how to resist non-violently instances of unjust landowners and structural evil. So if this is new to you, I really encourage you to read Walter Wink's work, one book in particular, Engaging the Powers. So Jesus is calling us to engage in creative, resolute non-violence. The words, you have heard it was said, moves us through the passage from unlimited retaliation when both eyes for an eye was accepted to limited retaliation, only one eye for one eye, to limited love, love your neighbour and hate your enemy, and finally to unlimited love, which means love your enemies. And it looks like pie in the sky. When we look for outcomes to such responses, our first reaction can be, but this is just not sensible. It doesn't make sense. Yet such nonviolent response is right, first and foremostly, not necessarily because it works, sometimes it might, but rather because it is the way of Jesus. If we choose to only express love if it will be appreciated, if it will change the other person, or because it will work for us, then it becomes transactional. It does not express the unconditional love that God's bestowed on us. Love has no strings attached. So a quick word here, we do need to be very careful how we think of these verses in regard to someone who is currently in an abusive situation. Such a discussion is beyond the time we've got here, but it's important that we just note this. There are many examples through history of those who have sought to love enemies very, very practically. Right now, there are community peacemaker teams scattered in dangerous conflict zones around the world seeking to do precisely what Jesus calls us to do. And in so doing, they're putting their own lives on the line. And of course, some have been killed. So pacifists don't sit back and let the military do their dirty work by any means. And in a very different situation, you've probably heard about the Amish community of Nickel Mines, which I'll just remind you of, in Pennsylvania in 2006, where a man named Charles Roberts entered a one-room Amish school taking hostages and he shot 10 girls aged between 6 and 13, killing five before shooting himself. It's not well known, but that apparently one of the 13-year-olds in the room stepped forward and told Roberts to shoot her to save the others. She was shot, but he also shot the others. <laughs> the emphasis on forgiveness and reconciliation in the Amish community's response afterwards was incredibly debated, widely debated in the media. Some of the parents and grandparents of the girls who had been injured or died went to Robert's widow, Mari, and their children to tell them that they held nothing against her and forgave her husband. They provided comfort for the family and also established a fund to help the family financially. Really quite remarkable. And Mari Roberts wrote in an open letter to her Amish neighbours thanking them for their forgiveness. And she wrote, 
Your love for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately need. The gifts you have given have touched our hearts in a way no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing our world. And for this, we sincerely thank you. Quite remarkable. And it went around the world in the media because it was quite remarkable. And I find myself pondering on a number of things that these raise. Sometimes when we're in great pain, in extremis, if you like, Forgiveness can be very far from our capacity in any shape or form. I notice in Jesus, when he was on the cross in great pain, in extremis, that Jesus says, God, you forgive them, for they know not what they do. You forgive them. Perhaps there's a case here for us to say, God, I can't forgive these people yet. I'm in too much pain, but I do not wish harm upon them. So, Can we take a mercy stance and can we say to God, I can't forgive them yet, but you can. Please take over here. You forgive them and help me to get to the point one day when I can forgive. Another issue is what if there's no remorse expressed by the one who is our enemy and has harmed us or our loved ones? But we do know that if we tie our own freedom to the other, to the enemy, and wait for a certain response from them before we can move on, then we're continuing to let them trap us. We let them set the agenda. We can sometimes hold resentment against our enemy, but this is like drinking acid and expecting the enemy to suffer. It's corrosive only to ourselves. And another thing that rises in my mind is how were the Amish able to move so quickly into the stance of mercy for the person who killed these girls so ruthlessly? I'm not about to romanticise the Amish at all. While studying in the States, we spent some time with the Amish communities. We are all human and all communities have dysfunction. However, one of the strong characteristics of the Amish community is to desire to hold a posture at all times of forgiveness. And when this is a daily practice, then when bigger, more serious things happen, the capacity to have mercy in that moment comes much more easily. So what can we learn from this? What does the spirituality of loving our enemies involve? And perhaps there are a couple of things we can think about, and I'm sure you'll have some thoughts too. One perhaps is a spiritual practice of letting go. This is a central pillar for Anabaptists and Amish, as well as other Christian pacifists. And we call it Glassenheit. It's a German word meaning a releasement into God in such a way that our shoulders drop, Our tension is released and our bodily felt sense reflects this. It's an active, radical trust in God where we seek to release our ego through kenosis, through self-emptying, and to inhabit the action of the living Christ. So it is far from passive. It is active and is justice-seeking. And it is rather a posture of agency, a mode of comportment. So when we know we're entering into a heated situation or we find ourselves in the firing line or someone seeking to humiliate and slam us, our default position may well be to respond like with like and bring to the moment guns blazing in our belly and a fighting stance, which simply adds fuel to the fire of the moment. Instead, perhaps we can deliberately enter into a state of galassenheit where we can access Christ's wisdom, Christ's ways, Christ's ways of justice seeking. 
I am in Christ and Christ is in me. We all know this in our heads, but such knowledge can remain undigested and thus not make a difference in the way we live out this truth. And this we need to practice, like the Amish, in little things, in the supermarket, our driving, the little put-down remarks that might come our way, in order to better able engage in this Galassenheit, this releasement into Christ, in the immediacy of a bigger moment, a bigger issue. And perhaps, too, there is an embracing involved, to embrace fear as a natural companion to loving our enemies. We are learning as we grow into this. And also to embrace the truth that no one life is worth more than another in God's sight. And this includes our enemies. It's a difficult, difficult standard to live to. So I see these passages as being not about compliance and not about violence, but rather defiance, a dignified, nonviolent, active, justice-seeking defiance. And it encourages me to put spiritual practices in place so that what I know only too well in my head may indeed be incarnated through my presence and my everyday responses. And in so doing, my desire for myself and for others is that we may continue to be made whole, even as our Creator God is whole. Thank you. You have been listening to Australian Women Preach, brought to you by WATAC, Women and the Australian Church, and The Grail in Australia. You can find out more about WATAC at watac, W-A-T-A-C, and The Grail at grailaustralia.org.au. The music in this podcast is from the song Truth, from the album Into Silence, by songwriter, musician, theologian and teacher Danielle Ann Lynch. You can hear the full version on Spotify. Spotify.